no idea where this will lead us, but I have a definite feeling it will be a place both wonderful and strange. And welcome to the wonderful and strange Twin Peaks Logcast. I am Khalil, and with me today is the sparkling champagne to my pretty Pete poem. Oh, I see. It is so lovely, and I must now wax poetically about how great this podcast... I don't know many uh, poems, so I'm going to try uh, one off the top of my head. I do not like green eggs and ham. I do not like them, Sam I am. I will only be impressed if you can recite the entire book. <laughs> that would be pretty impressive. That would be pretty impressive, but unfortunately I will not give that impression today. Today we're looking at episode 19, written by Harley Payton and Robert Engels, directed by Caleb Dachanel. This episode I think is probably the weirdest named of the whole bunch. We've had a lot of names where we kind of scratch our heads like that's what they went with. This one's called The Black Widow. I mean... I mean, I get where... You could look at things like that, like but the, the, she wears black for most of the episode after like Dougie dies. So, so. you're referring to Lana, yeah, because okay. the, wit, the she's a widow. She is the literal widow. Yeah, out of all the people who have like dead husbands, uh, she is the one. So would you say Lana's the main focus of this episode? I mean, since when have these tiles ever been the main focus of an episode? Uh, I feel like most. Really? I don't, I don't remember all of them off the top of my heads. I refuse. I don't know why I said heads plural. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, nobody knows what I really look like. The true face of Khalil, the multi-headed Hydra. You, you will not know what, uh, special, uh, face I should also put for your head because it is still the Halloween time. You mean for like the YouTube or the YouTube. Because if someone's listening to this not on YouTube... Then it's going to be very strange to hear that I'm going to be changing your head in audio format. Hey, if you listen to us on, like, Spotify or a podcasting app or whatever, <laughs> check us out on YouTube sometimes. Uh, we're uh, Snake Eye Dreams on YouTube. We upload the podcast there, but we also do other video content. If you want to watch something uh, Utana and or Poppy related, because so far those are the two videos we have on yeah, there. Yeah, the, the natural overlap for our Twin Peaks audience. Yes. Uh, also, just uh, we love to hear from you in comments or uh, emails and, and stuff like that. So if you ever feel like emailing us, you can email us at snakeeyedreams at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can do a little, little tweet or tweet at us. Uh, with our handle via Twitter, Snake Eye Dreams One. That's the numeral one, as in take one more step and I blow your dang head off. That, that escalated. Was that was that a p- part in this session, or are you just threatening me at this I, point? I'll leave that to the listener to determine. V- very well. well. I'm a big believer that in uh, in ambiguity. In storytelling and the idea that the listener is smart enough to determine where exactly I was going with that. Well, I'm a big believer in love and true love mm. and all forms of love. So and this was what the right episode greater, for you. Yes, because what greater love was there than Lana and Dougie? We truly, a romance for the ages. I mean, an invitation all, to love. After all, the episode was called The Black Widow because it's about Lana. Yes. She's the main character of this episode. Yes. Uh, and we certainly get to see a bit of her because one of the first scenes with her is her running down the hallway screaming and kind of like smiling at Bobby for like a half second. And I did not even <laughs> think of noticing that, but you paused it when that was happening and kind of slow-moed it. 
And yeah, when she <laughs> runs by screaming, there's a little bit of a smile on her face. <laughs> I don't know if that was like directed, like if that's what Caleb Dashnell was like wanting the actors to do, or maybe she was just having fun doing the act, you know, yeah. having a good time screaming in the hallway and Overall, it just got slipped into the, the actual final product. It was just a fun take and they decided to keep it. Because um, if he, she is smiling, I'm sure that colors your feelings on the death of our dearly departed Dougie Milford. I didn't expect the death right away. I expected like maybe that uh, Dougie was going to run around the corner in a little tuxedo speedo and chase after her uh, through the Great Northern. Um, the average Twin Peaks viewer can only handle so much Dougie at one time. So <laughs> I'm glad we were able to, you know, cut him out before he became too strong and too powerful. Mm -hmm. Um and he certainly has a strong presence because he ends up having like his bed strewn with these lovely books of bits of poetry and love books. And okay, it's like sex guides. Sex but, guides. I don't know. I mean, yeah, there is I some poetry. Know. There's some Lord Byron poetry. Yeah, yeah. The Kama Sutra is also there, though. Yes. Right? And like some, it looks like bondage kind of related stuff. Like there's whips on the cover. Mm -hmm. So... Whatever either Dougie's into or whatever Lana's into. Do you think that the clear mask with the uh, mustache and the uh, lipstick was more so of a Lana thing or a Dougie thing? Well, I don't know if we have enough. Okay. Do we have enough information to psychosexual analyze these people? <laughs> Which one? Okay. So th there's multiple ways to look at this, right? Yes. If it's Dougie, does Dougie wear the mask and it, it's, a, it's a, a kink of his to be viewed as the mask man. Mm -hmm. It's not like a obscuring your identity kind of mask. It's Listen, like a CPR almost thing. All I want to see is this man like reciting Lord Byron poetry in this mask as he's ready to do his deed. Not the deed itself, but just like an intro to the deed. A prelude. Yes. Or is Dougie buying the mask for Lana? Because that's like the ideal uh, woman for him. Because I think the mask had a mustache, didn't it? Or like... Yeah. It's kind of a masculine-ish face. Or is Lana wearing the mask voluntarily because she wants to take on the position of the male power? I mean, we only saw Andy pick up one mask, so maybe there were two masks. Maybe that Ooh. this was for everyone. And then there's sort of some weird, like, mirroring going on where, like, they're into the reflection of themselves. Hey, do in not the mask. phrase it as weird. Uh, let people have whatever no, fun they no, want not in the bedroom. To, okay, I, when I say weird, I mean... Um, not common. Mm -hmm. I, I do not mean to kink shame here. Mm -hmm. This is, this is a friendly environment. Although, uh, don't have a heart attack during it. That's, that's our PSA for today. And Lana certainly is not an ordinary girl. Apparently she has had some bad fortune, uh, growing up and seeing that Dougie has died from a potential sexual deed, uh, from potentially a heart attack. Certainly his brother is very upset about it but she seems also upset if we were to believe her feelings since she was one that when making out with someone during like i think it was a school prom. dance or prom, prom yeah um she ended up kissing a boy uh the rubber band snapped and his jaw well locked but open. you missed the part though where his braces gleamed in the moonlight it it was <laughs> it was a very beautiful and mesmerizing scene i can see why dougie really enjoyed lana can you, with phrases like that. Can you? Phrases that gleam in the she, moonlight. She does have a knack for storytelling. If we're to believe the gathering of men she acquires by the end of the episode, she's got this captive audience between uh, Andy and Dick, who've put aside their interest to join Lana, as well as uh, Sheriff Truman. And I think most disconcertingly, Doc Hayward, who is a married man, yep. uh, listening very eagerly to her stories. Now, we got to 
look at a few things right here because there there are some. I, I I'm pretty sure that I caught a fair amount of parallels, and I think that you may have as well. Uh, a woman who is known to attract many a man, mm -hmm. um, just by almost her own presence. Sure. Um, Someone who herself has had bad fortune follow her, yes. uh, whether it is breaking the jaws of loved ones while making out with them uh, in the moonlight with braces, what have you, uh, or this instance with Dougie. Has another uh, female character broken jaws? No, but I mean, certainly broken hearts and probably broken a few other things. We know that Laura Palmer was quite the person to attract other okay. people. Uh, someone who was known for wearing black in the red room. Um, Maybe nervous about meeting Jay tonight. Jay <laughs> stood for Jelana. <laughs> <laughs> because Jelana is her nemesis. Maybe it's because that the L is the opposite J, you know, because you flip it around. Yeah, in some, or maybe, in some fonts. Yeah. Or maybe it might be that cousin angle. Maybe Lana is the secret cousin that was actually connected to Maddie. And I don't know where I was going. Yeah, I don't know where you're going with it either. Um, but okay, I can see where you're, okay, so like the idea of Lana as a Laura-esque character, I guess it's too early to say, because there's other women in this series or girls in the series who've had sort of that femme fatale weirdness going on, because like even Audrey, I would say to some extent, has this element of like allure for the men in her life. But not to this angle, like literally it is a room filled with men just serving her milk and all, like in endearment staring at her as she talks about clown suits and underpants. Is this what you think Laura did too, though? The only real scenes we've seen with Laura are like where James is talking how nice her hair was and how everyone yeah. talks about okay. how they love Laura. James so I imagine if Laura, if Laura was like in the show, these are the scenes that I would imagine with Laura. Okay. I guess we'll have to wait when we get to Fire Walk With Me yep. and the diary of Laura Palmer and see how thick her Southern accent is. Yep. If she's truly the same person as Lana. <laughs> um, and I think another very strange and definitely very stretchy connection you could make with the Laura-Lana thing. Are you, is that, are you insulting me? Uh, is that um, the when uh, Dwayne comes in to find the body of Dougie Milford, the theme music <laughs> is mysteriously... Harold's theme. I mean, so if is that trying to imply the Dougie Harold Smith connection? Look, buddy, the Twin Peaks I'm has not a your fun buddy, <laughs> pal, friendo. Um, we already seen some weird time things. I mean, in the end, if I had to say someone who was rather poetic, it would probably be both Dougie as well as uh Howard. No, um, I Harold. Find, yeah. Howard. Yeah. The Duck. Howard the Duck. <laughs> I haven't seen that yet. I, it's on my list. Yes, but... I just finished the MCU, and this is connected. Mm, sure. Yeah. Yes. Um, <laughs> but with Dougie being a poetic presence and also Harold being a poetic presence, I don't know how much of a connection there is. Or if it was just like, hey, man, this sounds really cool right here. Let's put this right here. I'm not going to lie. Just looking for an excuse to mention that Harold's theme was used here because that's always seemed super strange to me. Yeah. I love Harold's theme. I mentioned that when we had Harold's episode. I think Dougie and Harold would get along. I Sure, based on what evidence. Um, I don't. Lord Byron poetry. <laughs> Lord, sure, okay. Yeah. I think, okay, let me put it this way. I think Dougie would have some interesting stories that Harold could write down in his diaries. Yes. I'll give you that, and I'll Thank leave you. it at that for the listeners to pull, to ponder upon. Lisa, can I have some more? <laughs> so, 
It's just so strange, though, that Harold's theme was barely ever used for Harold, but now it's kind of like the default sad music. And it, it happens with Dwayne seeing Dougie, and obviously it's a touching moment where the brothers who always fought, obviously Dwayne cared for Dougie. There's a sense of he wants to get justice done and bring Lana accountable for her murder. And there's also uh, Dougie in the bed who is dead, like Harold. So my question <laughs> to you, Professor, is do you find the whole situation with Dougie's death more sad or more funny? And, like, what's the ratio of those two emotions? It is more funny than sad because there is not much connection that I can see with Dougie. Uh, Dougie was introduced a few episodes ago to argue with his brother, Dwayne. Arguments ensued, had a little bit of wedding, had a few fun lines, wish he had more, uh, and then suddenly he's dead after a potential sexual encounter. A uh, heart attack, if you will. So, it is something that is sad towards the characters, but by the gods, like, every time Dwayne comes up, it's like, I want to file a suit again. There's no crime committed, Dwayne. We we can't, like, there's nothing here. It's like, well, I'm going to make sure she doesn't get a single red cent. <laughs> like, Dwayne's performance is a sense of mourning, but also a sense of humor that I've come accustomed to Twin Peaks that... I enjoy. So, yeah, I'd say I lean more on humor, but there's still a sense of tragedy here. I think if he ingratiates himself with Clinton Sternwood just enough, maybe the judge can pull some sort of bogus <laughs> verdict. The way that these kangaroo courts operate in Twin Peaks, maybe Lana could end up getting some justice done to her. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. So I, I guess it depends on who he brings over for drinks that day. So. Thank goodness, though, there is some justice being done, though, in Twin Peaks because there is a coach in a school in Twin Peaks who has the foresight to realize that just as it's, you know, perfectly unfair to deny someone the right on the football team, you know, just because they're black, how dare you not let this middle-aged woman join the wrestling team? I think that speaks for itself. I think it speaks pretty much for yourself because this middle-aged woman is a middle-aged woman. And no, he, she he has the moral and constitutional right. The judge... What? The coach said it best. Where in the Constitution does it say this is allowed? Um, it's it's scribbled really tiny. <laughs> so a lot of people, you know... Okay, so Thomas Jefferson, TJ Maxx. I call him TJ Maxx. Uh, how did I know you were going to blame Thomas Jefferson no, on I'm this? No, I'm not blaming. I'm praising him. He had the foresight. <laughs> Granted, he didn't have the foresight to not, like, own 600 slaves. That's a bad look, TJ Maxx. But, but he did scribble in really tiny, really tiny, where it says, like... All men are created equal. If you look between that line and the one below it, it's scribbled really tiny. It says, and middle-aged women can wrestle. It's really tiny. So a lot of times like textbooks and like online copies don't copy it in there because it's actually very difficult to match the way it was typefaced in there originally. It, it Was it type? I think it was handwritten. No, I mean it? like typefaced in the sense of like the the... The writing style, the way it was portrayed in How there. could you have a feather thin enough to write that? TJ Maxx had a lot of things, including 600 slaves. It's a bad look, <laughs> but he also knew enough to say that this woman should get to wrestle. And I think you could even see it in the way she wrestles. This woman was born to fight, born to control, born to love. And love can blossom and bloom on the battlefield. No. I refuse. There's, there's got to be. There are multiple moral and legal repercussions potentially I, for this. She put, she put her opponent in move. I have to call the full Nelson, the full 
Mike Nelson. I, d- I don't know if this is an actual move. I do not know the wrestle. A Nelson's a thing. Like, you put someone in a full Nelson, that's what? a thing. I, I don't even know sports, and I know that's a thing. Okay, that's fine. You can know that's a thing. I do not. I'm just now connected that maybe that's why his name's Mike Nelson. Is like Nelson. Because he's on the wrestling team? Well, either that, or, Nel- either that or Nelson Mandela, and I don't see the connection there as much. Or so. maybe Nelson's just a name. I know that this is probably the first time I will ever say and only time I'll ever say something is just this in Twin Peaks. It's because you're in denial. You want to deny this woman her God-given or or uh, not God-given. We're, we're going to re- respect all views here or many gods given. Either way, her right to wrestle. This was a painful to say, scene to, to watch. Say such brilliant lines as, you're right, this is sort of like necking. As she like cracks his neck. Yeah, she literally like him. tries to like get him involved with her, like saying, like trying to push him on to a date while she is just like breaking this child. You know, there's this song by John Mayer called "Heartbreak Warfare," and I think that this idea that love can be war, love can be conflict. There's a sense of dominance happening here, and in really, it's kind of a beautiful representation of the power struggles that are innate in all relationships. Was that the second, third, or fourth time that Snake was thrown down that you realized this? I don't know. Maybe I've been thrown down a few too many times. I'm ready to rationalize it. It it wasn't even like the super like extreme cases that we've seen in the past, like uh, her throwing a guy way across the field or her and uh, just like tearing off a fridge door. No, it was actually pretty sustained if you it's like she wasn't trying to actually kill him she went pretty easy all things considered yeah uh, but he will die if uh she does stick on the team like i am certain that this is the next casualty because the next time we see him after the match he's like sauntering up to donna i don't know the the person you speak to in the high school it looks like he's half paralyzed and all he can really say is that he got beat up by a girl and you're right because like nadine talked to donna prior and like that connection i understand because donna is dating james James lives with Ed and Nadine, so Donna has to have met Nadine a few times. Sure, I get that there would be a rapport and a relationship there. However, it's really strange that like Mike and Donna are in such good terms, considering if someone remembers the beginning of the show, like in the pilot, Mike was this very controlling person who like basically wanted to know everything about her life and like maneuver her around like she was his possession. Like, the classic, stereotypical, like, abusive boyfriend. So for them to be, like, joking around this way is real weird. Like, there's this sense in where he's like, Donna, you've got to pretend like I'm still your boyfriend. And she's like, I'm not even that good of an actress. But the fact that they can even banter like that mm-hmm. after what they've been through in the past is real weird. Mm-hmm. Does that seem like a problem? Or is that fine? There's a lot of problems uh, going this on. This is the only problem. Yeah, yeah sure. Um, but at the very least, I think it shows a fair amount of desperation on, um, Mike's part. Well, okay. We didn't say this last time, but there is still the chance that Mike might be 18 right now. Might be. Might be. Still in high school. Might be. Still in high school. Yeah. Still around parents. But a legal adult. Potentially. Potentially. Maybe. Legal adult. Maybe. The fact that we have to like put on these asterisks still is concerning. Uh, Nadine is still in a scenario that whether or not Mike is 18, this is not a concern for Nadine because she is not in her right mind at the moment. Well, because like Audrey may or may not be 18. Bobby may or may not be 18. Bobby's a weird case because he's involved with Shelly and Shelly's older than him. So I don't know if like 
how big the age gap is between those two? Because Shelly's not in high school. I'm trying to rationalize that maybe the Nadine thing isn't the worst thing here. Maybe there's other cases. It's okay for an 18-year-old to be into older women, okay? And I would hard, hardly say that she's, like, grooming him or, like, preying on him in any way other than, like, physically. But, like, aside from like that. Like, physically preying on him, uh, wanting to just personally cheat on a relationship uh, that she only has so much knowledge uh, over. Yeah. Uh, trying to basically throw him down in multiple angles, uh, potentially crushing him. But to be fair, uh, Ed also her. wants out of that relationship, too, it seems. So, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Uh, so I take it you're not necessarily finding these Nadine encounters funny. I'm fine. I found uh, humor in them plenty of times. This is the point in which like there were so few extremes that it started leaning into the point of discomfort. Like I mentioned before, um, there were so many very obvious larger points with the Nadine points that were exciting and fun. But this one, she was just throwing around a. What I am thinking of right now, a child, left and right, while also leaning on heavy on some of the flirtation. And it makes me fear for Snake's life and overall Nadine's well-being if it continues. And honestly, I don't know... Like, we are only getting one side of Nadine's story here on the school side. I don't know what the home life is like anymore, but it looks from Ed's perspective to be not so great. Yeah, James is gone, first of all. Yep. I don't know what Ed thinks about that, that James is gone. I think that he gives a general idea, but just because there's also the matters with Nadine, he yeah. is feeling pretty rough on life. Ed's someone who seems very emotionally reserved, very stoic. I, I see him as kind of the manly man's man who, like, doesn't really show his emotions or explore them. Yeah. And maybe that's me just projecting that onto him. But I think we kind of get a little bit of that even in the scene with Ed and Norma in this episode where Norma says that, you know, you and I used to talk about things and we still can talk about those things. Yeah. Which gives the impression that, Norma might be the only person Ed is comfortable opening up to in that emotional sense. Yeah, he was just talking to her about, like, remember when we were kids and um, how we were making plans and just talks about how fast and life ends up living and how he recognizes that this is his life and he just doesn't like it all that much. And, I, and I hope I'm not giving away too much personal information when I say that uh, the professor and I are not middle-aged. We are fairly younger people. So I don't know if we're at the point in our lives where we can fully appreciate Ed's words, mm -hmm. but I think even to the extent to which we have lived our lives so far, the way in which time accelerates as you get older, I think even you and I can see the truth in this sentiment that, you know, you make these ideas and plans and you just kind of like naturally adjust to them over time to the point that, you know, you don't really realize how fast time is going. There's this famous song by the Talking Heads that, uh, Why do you keep bringing up the talking heads? Have I brought them up before? I'm pretty sure you brought them up before. You brought think, up music people Yeah, because there's uh, there's more than one band. I'm allowed to do that. <laughs> anyway, they have that song. Um, they have this song called Once in a Lifetime, and it, it's probably one of their biggest hits. And uh, it's it's the one, if you know the song, when the, it's like an 80s pop hit where it was like, same as it ever was, same as it ever was. In the music video, David Burns looking like, uh, like, Bill Nye, the science guy, flailing around here in pelvic thrusting. Anyway, fun video uh, and fun song. But the general idea, at least I've always got out of it, 
people get stuck in these sort of ruts where you kind of are so used to life that you just make these decisions that become parts of your routine. And the part of the chorus in the song is like the, the singer realizing like, you know, this is not my beautiful house. This is not my beautiful wife. How did I get here? What have I done? And sort of like kind of waking up out of the routine and waking up out of the ruts. Because I think people, we plan these big events that are going to happen. You know, when you're when you're a little kid, you always imagine, oh man, I can't wait until I can like, I don't know, get my driver's license or something. And then you actually get your driver's license and it's like just another thing you do now. You drive all the time. It's not a big deal. A lot of people, they're like, oh man, I hope I get married one day. Then you get married and it's just a thing you do now. Right. So I imagine for for someone like Ed and Norma, you know, they've made all these plans in their life. And just before they knew it, some of the plans happened and now they're just part of their routine. And some of the plans just fell completely away. And it's this sort of very, very minimal sadness that I say minimal in the sense that it's subdued and not always conscious. Yes. That upon reflection, it's like you don't realize where the years have gone, that half your life is now gone and some of those dreams used to hold so valuable don't seem to matter much anymore. I don't know if I'm just speaking out of my ears here. No, but. no, no, no. I think that there's a value in this. I think that especially with kind of what he ends up leaning on, I think life, it definitely isn't quite the same. And I don't know how some people might feel about it, especially Hank. Uh, I, Hank. I do think that they have the right attitude though. I think it's Norma who says that they can make new plans. Mm-hmm. Um, but then we get, as you mentioned, Hank, yep. this incredibly ominous music could turn be? where a, a domino appears with the numbers three and four. It's always prior. It's been like three and three, right? I, I'm pretty sure it was three, three, or the, I think there was a point where we had seen a four, four. But it was always the same number on both sides. That's a three, four. So the most basic like over analysis I can think of is that there's an imbalance, mm-hmm. which actually goes back to something we'll talk about later with Ben. Mm-hmm. But I think the idea of there's an imbalance now there's a shift. That's the most basic I can think of as far as interpreting the domino. Okay, if it means anything. If the domino is changing and we're not insane, like just like horribly not seeing the domino correctly, um, I'm pretty sure we paused on it. I'm pretty no, sure we're we, with No, we definitely knew we we're talking I, about, about that domino. I, I like to think that like Hank has a collection of domino keychains that he has like a little wooden box for and he just prepares like what he's feeling for today. Like uh, I'm feeling a three, four for today and just plucks it out. We haven't even seen the dominoes in quite a long time, have we? No. It's my, is this the first time in season two? I think that this has been a while since season two. I wouldn't say it's, it's the, the first. It's the first one since, like, Leland's death. Mm-hmm. I guess, Eve Odishly, though, um, it is definitely a aspect that I'm trying to still figure out. Like, what's up with the domino? Yeah, and I, and I have more things I would love to say, but it's too early for me to say them. Mm-hmm. Listeners... I hope you know that as someone who's seen the show, there's a lot of things I want to talk about that I just can't spill all my beans yet, but the bean spillage shall occur later. Ow. One of the things I want to spill some beans about is Evelyn Marsh, James, and uh, Malcolm Sloan. And I can only say so much right now because we're in the thick of this plot line. We haven't gone past it. But Twin Peaks fans know the discourse around the Evelyn Marsh saga. So, Professor, what do you think of Malcolm Sloan? Best name. It's so There's good. There's no greater name in the full... I don't think that they can top it. I mean, Dick Tremaine I, was pretty good. Dick Tremaine was good, but it is no Malcolm Sloan. It's... You mentioned earlier Invitation to Love. Like, 
this is basically a soap opera to mm. the extreme, right? Like, yes. Twin Peaks has always flirted around with being a soap opera, at least in part. Mm-hmm. I would say it is a soap opera, but it was a deconstructive kind of spin on it where it had like supernatural crime elements. This is the part of it that's so clearly a soap opera that the name Malcolm Sloan could even exist. All I'm saying is that he was birthed with like deep sunglasses and probably a nice like motorcycle when he w- came out of the womb. This this is the name that would be put onto Malcolm Sloan. And, and notably, we're not even in the town of Twin Peaks. No. So you, normally it's like, oh, Twin Peaks, it's such a wacky and weird town. There's spirits in the woods. That's why things are strange. No, where, Malcolm wherever. Malcolm Sloan exists outside of that. Yes. Um. Somewhere, wherever. Where is James? James drove uh, somewhere. He's past Wally's hideout. <laughs> so he's definitely somewhere in the world with Evelyn and Malcolm Sloan. Who apparently is Evelyn's brother. And uh, there's a story basically toward the end of the episode where it's like Evelyn's been married to him for at least four years and he's not, wanted to. You said him. Uh, to make it more clear, who yeah, is she married to? to? Mr. Not, Marsh. Not Sloan. Right, Mr. Not, Marsh. Yep, Did Mr. they give Marsh. a first Jeffrey? Did Maybe. they get a first name? Anyway, mm. uh, Evelyn's been married to her husband, Mr. Marsh, for like four years now and Malcolm's just wanted to kill him. Wanted to get back at him. He promised that he was going to get vengeance, and he thought that that was just a sense of being... I forget the words, but like noble valley, somewhere along those lines. Sure. And um, that was about four years ago, and now he is just point of a spiteful killing. It is just getting closer every day. And his motivation for killing would be that uh, Mr. Marsh, quote, once a fortnight, he pounds her mercilessly. There's this... He describes it as a, a vicious cycle that occurs where Evelyn has to mask bruises and have defensive postures because basically that he is constantly uh, in an abusive situation where he is the abuser to Evelyn. Mm-hmm. And Malcolm, being the brother, is kind of defenseless and helpless on the sidelines. Mm-hmm. But you might ask, dear listener, why doesn't Malcolm Sloan just do something about this? Well, James is your audience surrogate. And I he think says, the reason why he can't is he because says, this is a rich and powerful man. He says... He says. He says. Malcolm Sloan. Malcolm Sloan. Utters the very words. Utters these words. Sonny boy. Sonny boy. Nobody stops Mr. Marsh. Nobody does. You can jot that down and put it under your pillow. Whatever. For like the note fairy or whatever that. Yeah. I don't know what it means, but no, I love that line. I don't line. know. And you were commenting that like James is still <laughs> there. I'm just going to assume it's because it was like a stormy night. They didn't want James on his motorcycle getting pelted. Yeah, but does Mr. Marsh know? Like his <laughs> motorcycle has to be somewhere. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm not going to be able to make up for that home improvement sound. Did you doctor that in any way? <laughs> I did not. Oh, my God. I, I was not. I was listening to the audio of the finished podcast. Mm-hmm. Not just to hear myself talk, okay? I promise. It, it sounds it like... quality control. Yep. And I got to the part where I, d- I did this, like the second Tim the Toolman Taylor, huh? and it was so good. I have never been more proud of my audio before. Uh, I, I applaud you. And now that I've done it twice in this podcast, not as good. Yep. I revealed my hand that that's never going to happen again. Never again again. You get one shot. I have as much of a chance of making that sound again as Malcolm Sloan does of topping, topping? Toppling uh, Mr. Marsh. And speaking of which, it seems that James is concerned for Evelyn's sake, as they yes. sit up upon the vehicle that he has recently fixed, as she strokes onto the horn and is just talking back and forth with him, and he is just 
very concerned because he, you know James knows what it means to be alone. <laughs> James knows. No, first he's like, "Are you afraid of your husband?" And then she just kind of looks at him. I know what it feels like to be alone. Yep. I mean, has he been alone at any point in the series so other like, than recently? There's different kinds of loneliness, right? There's, yes. There's the general normal kind that we most expect where, like, someone's not around people. In that situation, I don't know if we have enough evidence of that because, if anything, he wants to be alone. He drives off into the night by himself. Now, mind you, he has a very poor situation with his mother, but from yeah. what we understand, he's learned so much from Ed as a yeah. trade and seems to go to him he as has, a sense of comfort. He has people at his home. He has friends at school. He has a girlfriend. He associates with people. So all I'm left with is the kind of more deeper existential loneliness of like not feeling like they belong or not really having a, a really deep connection, which I'm going to put a maybe on that. I don't know if I can read the <laughs> contents of James's heart. No I one would can say that no one can. My best reading of the situation, all joking aside, would be that there might have been a hole in his heart after Laura's death that he has been trying to fill ever since. And I think the situations with Donna and Maddie could be viewed as attempts that didn't quite succeed. Yeah. So there's a loneliness to his to himself because of Laura being gone. Mm. It reminds me a little bit of when uh, when Bob was talking about pulling the the plug out of Leland, basically, and the conscience would leak in. It's almost like Laura, had the heart shaped locket plug, got pulled out, <laughs> and it's he's just had that hole ever since that heart-shaped hole. Yes. I'm mixing my metaphor very, very badly here, but... It's okay. But it's okay. You know, you know what I'm saying here. No. You know what I'm saying here. <laughs> uh, then anyway, they make out, uh, James and uh, Evelyn Marsh. Yep. And uh, then all of a sudden... Boom! Who, Mr. Who, Marsh, just like, he honks, honks on his way in. I've never, like, seen or heard of anyone who just drives up to their house and is like, eh, eh, I'm here! Eh, eh. But apparently he's here. You don't know anyone quite like Mr. Marsh. I don't know anyone quite like Mr. Marsh, but it your, seems that... Write that down and put that under your pillow. It seems that Evelyn is trying to convince James the same thing because she is saying, like, it's not as bad no, as it yeah. seems. Don't, I was just kidding. I was just playing. Yeah. Malcolm yeah. slow and... They're good. Ma more like Malcolm joking around. Mm -hmm. I don't know more why like, we're bringing up Malcolm Sloan. Because he was the one who also suggested these things oh, okay. of, of seriousness. Okay. He was just yanking your chain, though. He's just yanking your chain. Yeah. yeah. And there's someone who is definitely yanking on other people's chains, most most likely emotionally and maybe a little bit physically, our dear little Nikki. Let's talk about what Judy Swain said. Oh, yes. Uh, at Judy, Helping Hands. Judy Swain, one of our many new characters from here. Not just do we have Malcolm Sloan, but we have Judy Swain. Well, let's let's talk about Judy then. What, what did you think of her? She was there to say that there are some fun things in Little Nicky's past. It seems that tragedy has followed him and his parents have been killed. Not I mean, I don't know if I'd call, like, deep-seated trauma as a fun little thing in his past. It's a fun little thing. If we take the story and narrative seriously, this kid's got a really rough life. Yep. Um, but then, as, as, as the realization dawns upon Dick Tremaine... Which, by the way, Dick Tremaine is looking very nice. Please, I last time, I was the one who updated us on the appearance... Do you want to go ahead and kind of mention uh, what he's wearing today? Well, first off, Dick Tremaine leaves the kid in the car because, oh, he's so excited to go on the adventure. But, yeah, that's, okay, don't leave kids in the car. I don't care what season it is. No. Um, 
He is partaking on a lovely turtleneck followed by a button-up and a sweet fuzzy jean jacket uh, with a handkerchief stuffed into the pocket and lovely tan-like uh, shorts. Maybe beige-like, maybe like those lovely pajamas we saw in the past. Regardless, a lovely color, a lovely color It's much indeed. lovelier than those pajamas. Don't you dare compare those pajamas to And the, the best part, the best part is that Horn's department store must have had a matching pair because oh, little Nicky's wearing the same thing that we discover later. Isn't that cute? It is absolutely dapper. So, he is inside of this attire ready to take Nikki camping. Well, yeah, and he's like realizing, Dick Tremaine's realizing as uh, as Judy's going on that, you know, the, the parents were killed. They didn't just like normally die. Yeah. Something happened. He's like, how did they get killed? He's like concern on his face. I like to which Judy are, replies. It's like mysterious circumstances. It's supposed to be concern on his face, but the way that the line is delivered is like Judy Swain. Go ahead, keep talking in front of the others. I swear, I will ruin your career if you keep going. <laughs> <laughs> so we flash forward later, and uh, after he's done the deed, no, he is what? <laughs> okay, no, you can't do that because earlier done the deed referred to Dougie with his wife. Oh. You can't you can't use the same verbiage here. I, I I it was in context of like ruining Judy Swain. So I'm pretty sure at some point he probably ruined Judy Swain's career. Okay. Uh, that's just out of my speculation. Yeah. Jokes aside. So we he, we see him on the trip. Well, uh, a side uh, journey on the road on the trip. of the trip because apparently his car broke down, which under he, mysterious circumstances. And he swore that he recently got his car checked. He's frustrated. He's reading a book, having a fun. Not only did he get it checked, he got it checked at the gas farm. Gas Meaning who likely looked at it? Ed. Ed Hurley. Ed the expert, in which James has attested that he, in the same he episode. Is, he is really good at cars. So this is truly mysterious circumstances. Yes, and look, meanwhile, while Tremaine is trying to take care of this, little Nikki is just like spinning the wheels, honking the horn, blinking the lights. It is not a fun time for Dick. And there's a point in which like Dick just yells to him to get out of the car. He's just like, do you hate me? Uncle Dick, and he's like, no, no, I don't hate you. <laughs> and little Nicky just walks over, gives a look at Dick Tremaine, and suddenly, boom, his car goes in some way in direction. I just remember a loud sound before Nicky runs up, hugs him, and says, are you okay, Uncle Dick? Are you dead? Um, yeah, that is neat. Sounds like um. Mysterious circumstance. It does, and that is exactly what Dick Tremaine is thinking. Because later that night... He ignores, like, everyone's ignoring Lucy that night. There's um, ominous music as he enters in. Because this was, like, right after the cut from Hank with the domino. Yes. So, like, Hank has the 3-4 domino, ominous music, carries over the next scene where uh, you see Dick Tremaine enter. Briskly walking and shaking his umbrella, looks straight at Andy, not at Lucy, who's, like, getting herself settled. Like, oh, hey, Yeah, Dick. completely ignoring the woman behind her. Oh, Andrew skips over Lucy, goes right over to Andy, his best friend. Yes. They found a reason to be best friends now. And he says, you know, as, as crazy as this might sound, I do believe that little Nikki might be the devil or at least homicidal in the first degree. And one of the uh, best editing tricks done inside the series, we get a zoom in on Andy's mind as he sees little Nikki's true form. Of the devil. So, Professor. Yes. Do you believe that little Nikki is the devil? No. No. Okay. There have been strange works of spirits, okay, in Twin Peaks. Yes. How do you, how do you know 
that he, little Nikki is not such a demonic being. Little Nikki was left alone to his own devices around a vehicle. So yeah, likely he sabotaged the car, but because Dick Tremaine keeps leaving him alone. But I think that Dick Tremaine is just so unused to concepts of tending to people, caring for people, that as at the first sign of something negative in his life, he is immediately taking it to a great hyperbole. He is just imagining the worst case scenarios because I think that Dick Tremaine is very fearful for his situation. I think that this is his imagination running wild on like, this is the devil, this is what the cause, while well, this is more so a kid likely just acting out. Like, I like to think that there's a second psychic kid in Twin Peaks that can make cars boom uh, hey, with a single glance. if we have a kid who can move cream corn. There, there's, a, like, a power scale here, man, okay? Cream corn moving <laughs> is, like, a little nudge. Like, if there was, like, something cream corn size that he moved in the vehicle that caused that, maybe. Okay, I don't agree, because the fact that he moved the cream corn is cool, but it's the fact that no cream corn was on the hands when he moved it. Like, he... Every atom of cream corn has been transported. And tell you what. I'm All Nikki had to do was just shift the car a little bit. <laughs> what part of the car did he shift around a little bit? I don't bit? know car What's cream terms? corn size that he could move around? Then the therefore, axle. we are acting too quickly. This is a slippery slope for the us to follow. axle? Okay, what shape is an axle, Cleo? Tell us more. It's kind of uh, geometric. Yeah, it has a shape. Uh -huh. Yes, that is correct. Uh, so it's composed of lines. Uh, okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would say it's not a perfect circle, it, obviously. Okay. Probably, you could probably make triangles. You could make it out of triangles. Are you okay? I'm fine. You know who's not doing okay, though? Dick and Tremaine. might need a little bit of a check on. Dick Tremaine. Friends. Compatriots. You got to check on your friends. You got to make sure they're doing okay. We got to check on Ben. Ben's okay. Ben. Ben's okay. Once said like an episode or two ago that, you know, what power you could achieve by the right organization of furniture in the room. Yeah. I think he's figured out the sacred geometry. He has a large like pyramid like structure of various things with the white wolf at the top. White fox. White fox. Very important white fox. Yes. And because what is that white fox associated with? Uh, probably, uh, Leo, Leo Johnson. Louise. Leo no, no Leland. Leland. Cause that was the same fox that he like took the white fur out of. Yes, yes, So yes. I find that use of that prop very curious. I think that also having lamps like symmetrically on both sides, making twin peaks almost, uh, yes. is also very nice. My favorite part though, is that he has like Ben front and center the ben high Her, on. The Ben-Hur logo? No, just like his name Ben. No, but wood. it's meant to look at the Ben-Hur logo, right? Yeah. Because Ben Hur, like the big letters of Ben Hur, like on the poster. Oh no, you're not going to top that thing I'm I did sorry. last episode, Tim the Toolman Taylor. Like, <laughs> I'm not trying. The ship has sailed on that one, and I think else uh, Ben's ship has sailed in terms of his psyche. Yeah, his his name was though at this like a center high. Yeah, and in the middle of the scene, he puts it at like a very high point nearby the wolf, like he's Still raising his fox. name up. It's not a wolf. Stop calling it a wolf. <laughs> it is a wolf. Would be huge. It is the inner wolf. Okay, we had talked about this on the same podcast, didn't we? About like the inside you, there are two wolves. You didn't know what that was. I don't know what that is. That's. Ugh. I'm just referencing. I can't. How am I supposed to communicate when you don't know the phrases? By using my phrases. <sighs> the phrase that Benjamin Horn utters is that this room has balance. Yes. Distance. Symmetry. 
And when when uh, when Bobby starts to uh, say he admires Ben Horn, Ben Horn also again poetically says admiration is for poets and dairy cows. Which that- weird? I've ever told you the story about. Um, probably haven't because it hasn't come up yet. There's this really weird video where uh, I was when Endland Empire was made. He's uh, he's on like the side of the road in like L.A. I think it is, and he has like a cow with him. David Ooh. Lynch. David okay. Lynch. Sorry, okay. I probably should have prefaced that. <laughs> That's important. David Lynch is sitting on like the road here with like a cow because he's like doing the four year consideration, like trying to promote Laura Dern, the main actress, yeah, for award season, and like he's just got a cow. And there's this dude who like goes up, and I and I don't remember the exact name of this video, but like if I find it, I'll link it in the description for this podcast episode. Okay. But um. He just goes up to David Lynch and is like, what's with the cow? And he's like, well, I, I'm going to paraphrase. I don't know the exact word. He's like, well, milk comes from cows and cheese comes from milk. Oh, yeah, I understand. Yeah, yeah. And then and then he just walks away without any, any more understanding of what David Lynch was doing. Because the cheese then goes into the sandwich, which goes into the Ben Horn's mouth, and Ben Horn rules over Twin Peaks for a little bit, connected Captain. It all kind of circles in a greater narrative. I think what no, it means I think is that that David Lynch admired Laura Dern I and th- wants us to admire Laura Dern because admiration is for dairy cows. I think that's the. I think it's a very good line, but it is a good line. In the respects of admiration, anyone could really admire for like uh, for something as simple as dairy cows to something as aloof as poets there is a scale to admiration but at the same time it is pointless to him at the moment yeah it's it's not actually meaningful though it is interesting he puts out poets because ben horn himself is something of a poet i mean literally the episode before he is quoting shakespeare and i forgot to mention it earlier but in this episode we also get another shakespeare although this time instead of richard the third it's romeo and juliet because when uh when lana first appears to the men later in the episode uh, I think it's Dick Tremaine starts it, but then the other men start joining in of uh, just verbatim knowing the Romeo and Juliet uh, dialogue yep. when Romeo's looking at the balcony talking to himself. I think it's a woman that himself. seems to have some power over men, and it seems like they are uh, reciting something in a hive mind like mentality. Oh, <laughs> dairy cows. <laughs> the whole lot of them are dairy cows. <laughs> Um, Wait, I- meanwhile, what is Benjamin Horn? He is an enormous skyscraper, a leviathan ripping through the sky. He's on top. No. No? No. Are you challenging Ben's power? There's already plenty of people challenging Ben's power. Ben is in the screwed point, and that's why he's willing to hire Bobby out of all people. And- he's also willing to reenact the Civil War. Yeah, uh, the South is winning, um, apparently. It is day one of the Battle of Gettysburg. You know, the battle where the South won? Yeah, sure. Uh, he was also <laughs> wearing a coat. Uh, was that a Confederate coat? or Confederate. Okay. Neat to have in his collection, so I guess. for listeners who aren't as savvy on American history, because I know we do have some international listeners, um, there is something curious going on here with Benjamin Horn taking the side of the South in arguing like kind of the Gettysburg battle as being a turning point where the South is winning. Um, we'll have to see what plays on into day this one. on day one, because the South in the end does not win the civil war. The South, uh, whose main reason for fighting, Oh man, it all goes full circle is slavery. Just like TJ Maxx. Bad look, TJ Maxx, bad look. 
So Ben Horn putting himself on the losing side, historically known for being an oppressor. Uh, it, it, curiosity for a psychological perspective, because we made a comment, I think it was last episode again, where he put himself in the shoes of kind of the antagonistic king who wants more power. He kind of might be self-aware. Does Ben <laughs> know he's the bad guy? <laughs> Does he know he's the Billie Eilish song? No. You know, yes. the Billie, do you know that song? Professor, you, know, you say you don't know music, but you know bad guy, right? Um, is it like that one from like that one cartoon? Like I'm the bad guy, you know that one? Um, uh, I, I mean that was pretty called. close to what it is. I mean I'm gonna give you that. Oh okay, yeah. Uh, do what? No, so no. What comes after I'm the bad guy? No, no, no. no it goes duh, and then it kicks in the beat. That's that's There's the Billie beat? Eilish one. Yeah, well the the Billie Eilish one. I don't. It was like one of the biggest no, I songs. Only, I only know. I in know like 2019. The, I know. Oh, there was one in 2019 that was like, I'm the bad guy in this cartoon. Uh, Yonder Over Wander, I think it was. Okay, forgive me. Uh, it turns out that I must have discovered it last year, but it was from 2016. I'm the bad guy from Wander Over Yonder, a Disney show uh, that features a small little orange protagonist with a big old hat. Speaking of small, little, and orange. Okay, we're going to talk about Cooper later. But there was that scene where he looked orange in this episode, right? Yeah, yes. Like, it was early in the episode. Was, I think he was wearing orange, though, like reddish orange. He was talking orange. to Irene. Yes, a new character, with the, dog, the real estate the, the woman. The dead dog form. We're going to talk about it later, but this is just such a natural segue opportunity. Sure. I have to mention it. I don't know if it was, like, just the restoration on, this, on the Blu-ray, like, whatever. He looks, like, strikingly sunburnt. Hey, man, whatever can get me out of this music argument, I will go with. Yes, he does look very orange. I'm going to agree with everything you're saying right now. <laughs> <laughs> and you know who else is the bad guy? To return to that, <laughs> is Bobby the bad guy? But, yeah. Because yeah, no, we is... haven't seen Shelly in this episode, but Bobby... He is, he's making moves. He's making moves on Audrey as they are discussing, and Audrey is even uh, leaning in, just seeing how she can help, if you will. Um, maybe, you know, maybe you can help me celebrate. And he's, like, stroking her chin as he says this. Yeah. And, and then, when he leans in for a kiss amongst this conversation, she quickly ducks out. She very smoothly, like, leans out. It's not like a surprised, like, leap back or something. Yes. It's like she's, she's definitely bringing him in and then pulling away. Yes. She knows what she's doing. Because she says, I think we may be that we should do business together. The the double entendre here, the, the very clear innuendo, just like we had in the last episode. I keep referencing the last episode. These two joined together very well, <laughs> is what I'm saying. But like how she was kind of mentioning before about the I like to lick line. She knows what she's doing. Yes. Audrey's not dumb. And with her aspirations of being like almost like an FBI agent later in life, Again, my instinct here, I do know where the show goes, but just my instinct right now, if I was going for the first time, my instinct would be that she's using Bobby here. I, I would fail to believe that she would actually be interested in Bobby. Ow. No, a thing against the guy. A lot of things against the guy. He's though. just kind of... A I'm, dick. I'm, I, I, he's out, he I'm is sorry. a parasite. Audrey's out of, out, of it, like, Audrey's out of his league. Yeah. Let's just be real here. Like... <laughs> He's a football star, I guess, even though I forget that Bobby does football because it's never focused on. But nope. he may or may not still be doing football. But the guy's like a drug dealing, like low on the bottom pole kind of guy. Yes. That she would barely pay any attention to. 
And considering how she pretty clearly was like done with her father, it's like, I don't even, uh, she's obviously up to something here. That's what my impulse would be that she's using Bobby, reeling him in just enough to get his attention for something. Yes. There actually um, is something that she does want because when Bobby goes in, gets the pictures for Ben, uh, she ducks into this little hidey hole, which I've been wondering like where that door has led for a bit. Uh, it's so and, like in the Blu-ray, at least it's so obvious that there's a door there. Yep. It's not even a hidden door. Yep. Uh, but we finally go inside and that's actually one of the places where Audrey will go to try to lurk amongst the walls and listen in. And it turns out that Bobby got some pretty good pictures. He actually snuck up pretty well on that whole group. He and, saw Hank in some mysterious circumstances. Which, by the way, like he's able to sneak up on Hank and Hank could not sneak up on like everyone else in the gang that well because John was quick to catch him. So yeah, kudos on your sneakiness and, and slyness, Bobby. Bobby could have been killed. Bobby could have been killed multiple. Very easily. Yep. Yeah. Because I don't think Jean Reno would hesitate for like half a second. Very badly. Uh, and uh, I, I love Ben's line during this. Like, uh, say, Bobby, how much am I paying you? He's like, well, well we haven't really discussed payment. At all. And he's like, well, consider this your first raise. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love that line. And looking to maybe hire him full time, potentially. Yes. I mean, he hands him some unknown amount of bill for that raise. Uh, you like um, to... you believed that it was a $2 bill. Yeah, I immediately said $2. $2. A $2 bill. Mm -hmm. Just as archaic as the Civil War itself. If you, again, non-American <laughs> listeners, $2 bills are like, they're not rare, but they're not common they're archaic they're just like a thing we randomly sometimes see i think that ben likes greasing wheels that he likes so i can't imagine it's, it's probably a hundred less than a hundred well considering it was one bill hundred it might have been like two bills close to one another or... it was one bill it was two bills it was metamorphosized bill. through it alchemy was only a bill and it's sitting right here on ben's little Do, is the only music you know from cartoons <laughs> yeah, i think so <laughs> <laughs> and again this is an incredibly american centric episode because that's also a thing <laughs> right we mentioned the constitution schoolhouse rock. yeah schoolhouse rock and that's the episode involving the united states government how they pass laws and man, <laughs> sorry international listeners we're isolating you for some reason unless you're into day. cartoons in which i am completely involving you in my circle welcome uh, i'm sorry <laughs> i'm all studied just in very specific things well, and I think in that way, you're kind of like our dear friend, Major Briggs. He's also very well learned in very specific things, it sounds like. <laughs> Apparently, also being a pilot, that was a bit of a surprise. Yeah. We get a little scene with uh, another new character. An Air we Force four Colonel. characters, by the way. And his name is... Colonel Riley. That is correct, Colonel Riley. Uh, yeah. Colonel Riley is someone who still keeps classified information as like Truman and Cooper are just like begging, like, we need more information. Something on the White Lodge, something about Briggs, please. And it's like, yeah, but yeah, but uh, Colonel Briggs is the best, pi get best pilot I've ever known. He is so cool. And did you see any birds? I believe it. I believe he's a good pilot. Yep. I'm going to just immediately buy into it. <laughs> they speak so highly of Briggs in this episode, can, can we, and I'm willing to believe it. Yeah, the pilot thing is very strange, though, because we know Briggs was just, like, standing out inside the forest. Like We'll get there. We will get there. I do want to mention, though, that they kind of do a retcon. I'm just going to call it a retcon. It might even be one of the first big retcons in that the message that Cooper got in season one, I believe it was. Briggs says that he worked with Deep Space. He but said this he got message it in Deep Space. was not from Deep Space. It was from the woods itself. So it's either a retcon where it's just like, yeah, don't worry about what Briggs said earlier. 
Or you're meant to believe that Briggs did not give the full information. Yeah. Because I, I doubt Briggs wouldn't know. Briggs wouldn't know where the message came from. Maybe his special space device was wrongly attuned and it was making a U-turn from space back into the woods. If, if I'm I, mistaken, dear listener, like, actually, please let me know. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts. But I am on the side that this is a retcon and doesn't actually make sense because I don't think Briggs would, um, A, be unaware or B, lie to Cooper in that situation. The fact that he broke protocol to reveal confidential information in the first place is enough of a, a momentous occasion for Briggs. Now to argue a back man, at- a, a man who believes in authority that I would assume, and I'll let you argue in a second. Thank you. I would assume that Briggs is telling Cooper in confidence, yeah, that if he says it from deep space, he means it's from deep space. But there's still things he keeps confidential. He assures Cooper that there's just some things he can't discuss or walks around the issue. I- wouldn't believe that there's things that Briggs would hide from Cooper. I think that it's very possible he will hide things from Cooper if he is given reason. And seeing with his involvement with the White Lodge and the recognition of the White Lodge, I think that, yeah, maybe he just gave as much information as was needed, as his position might require. Okay. I mean, yeah, there's a sense of it with his confidentiality. There may not be full trust yet with Cooper, that he might be withholding things. I think both... <laughs> Both arguments have their merit. I'm, I'm curious which one, listener, you decide to side with. But, I, I yeah, I could see an argument either way. Mm-hmm. Um, either way, though, we are getting that clarity now, way after the fact, that it, the messages came from the forest, not from deep space. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, when you think about it, the forest isn't deep space if you think relative scales like from the sun. From the sun into deep space is Earth where the woods are. And... <laughs> and... Uh, I wrote it as Borgs. I know this is supposed to be Briggs, but <laughs> Borgs, uh, Colonel Riley says, was born with hardware most of us could only dream of. So again, hyping him up. Colonel Riley's the hype man if there ever was one for this guy. Yes. And uh, his disappearance has implications that go so far beyond national security that the Cold War would seem like a case of the sniffles. Like... In the things of, of Twin Peaks, like we think about like the, the severity of situations, about 80% at least of the stuff in Twin Peaks, probably way more than 80%, is small town drama that may or may not involve like the lives of a few people. Yes. Laura Palmer's death, unless we go really weird into like supernatural stuff, at the end of the day is a death of a high school girl. It's a tragedy for the community, but it's not, you know, a national security threat. Yeah. And at the- this is the biggest like thing outside of Twin Peaks of like, Oh, Major Briggs matters. (laughs) Major Briggs apparently does matter. Uh, There's also the concern of the White Lodge mattering to just to be watched out for or look into. And just the idea that there's just a lot of war in this episode between Gettysburg, between just like the reference to the Cold War, uh, and also just Snake being in the episode. Snake? Snake. Okay, I already made the Metal Gear Solid reference earlier. Snake. I can make another reference. I'm lagged. There's no rules on this podcast. Well, you may be talking about snakes. It is, in fact, an owl lamp that is in the Briggs household. A, a white, white owl, owl lamp. lamp. It, it just stares. 
<laughs> yes, it just stares in the general direction of Bobby and where the camera is, it's the uh, which most I enjoy. Conspicuous prop you could possibly have for this show. It, it if only it flashed as well, um, and just had like the words "I'm an owl" in front of it, <laughs> and then like Maybe it has it a keep... backdrop of like two peaks behind it, <laughs> and there's like a cherry pie on the table right in front of it with some donuts and coffee, and David there's a Lynch fish in the percolator, and David Lynch is peeking over behind the lamp behind the back. couch that Betty Briggs is sitting on, <laughs> and he's just saying symbolism over and over again. <laughs> And like Hank's domino drops on top of it. And yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's pretty it's pretty out there and obvious. Bobby comes home to the stormy night and he sees his his mom, um, Betty Briggs, sitting on the couch and he's like, Man, just like read a book or something. It's creepy just sitting here like that. Yeah. And you get a pretty tender conversation between Bobby and uh, his mom. We don't really see a lot of them together, so that was kind of cool to see. Mm-hmm. And uh Bobby mentions the talk that he had with his dad a couple of weeks ago, which in Twin Peaks words means like what 20 ep- i mean not 20 that's too much like there was a time skip at one point because that was season one that happened right i have never cared like what episodes and how much time has passed more than twin peaks oh i agree with you <laughs> this show's really strange with time i don't watch enough soap operas to know if that's a common problem yeah i've watched a little bit of like y and r back in the day young and the restless i've seen a little bit of like days of our lives but like that was years ago, and it never felt like time was that weird. Yeah. Because it's a daily soap opera. It moves super slow, and really, time doesn't matter as much. But the thing is, this show does make mention of dates and times because it's like an investigation. So it's like, I, I don't actually know if that was a couple of weeks ago or not. <laughs> a lot's happened in these couple of weeks. Because I think when Bobby had that conversation with Major Briggs, I think Audrey was still, like, kidnapped by, by Blackie. That's how <laughs> long ago that was. Like, Yep. <laughs> I don't think we met John Renault yet. Nope. I don't even know because Maddie was still in town. I don't know. Anyway, um, <laughs> it's so weird. And, you remember uh, Maddie. I remember Maddie. And then we uh, we get uh, out of nowhere. We get this comment from uh, from Betty Briggs that uh, she's talking about her husband and how nice he is. He's so incredible, incredible human being. She says that sometimes when we're lying in bed, he'll just stroke his hand through hands through my hair, and I and I said under my breath as Professor and I were watching this episode. And uh, it's too bad she can't do the same thing. Yeah, because he's bald. Maybe that's what he would enjoy, and so he enjoys it through. Uh, he's like, sword? man, I wish I had hair. <laughs> 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 that's the only reason he could ever do that. It's not for affection or showing he cares. But it he does show that he cares and shows some affection because despite their fears that he might not come back, boom, Briggs is back inside of his living room. Wearing with like some retro pilot gear, looking straight out of the 40s. How long was I gone? So now he might have World War II in there. I don't know what exactly that costume is. It is a very aviator-like outfit. I yeah. think it is more recognizable for the audience more than anything. Um, but, I, I'm, as far as time period, though, where would you put that? Um, I, I think 40s, but I, I could be wrong. Maybe. It, it just might be as casual wear. It kind of looks like Amelia Earhart era. Yeah. And she was like 40s, right? 1940s, Amelia Earhart? I don't know. What's time? Because apparently he's been stuck there for like two days, but yeah. he feels that it's been even shorter. He immediately asks, like, how long have I been gone? He doesn't even, he feels like, because they, you know, they mentioned it's just been a couple days, but it feels like you know, much shorter. Again, yeah. even, I think Major Briggs might be the most aware that time doesn't make sense in Twin Peaks right now. Yep. <laughs> but yeah, he, he, I'm, I'm surprised he even knows what year it is, to be honest with you. He just kind of poofs back in. He's in the living room now. He flew into the living room. Uh, the plane is the White Lodge. Um. <laughs> <laughs> He's quick enough to recover, though, that he tells Bobby right away to, you know, put out that cigarette, 
Which and, Bobby does. And then he says, and go mix me a drink, a strong one. A hard Which cocktail. Either, it either implies that either Briggs has shown him how to mix the cocktail himself, or he just recognizes his son knows how to do it. Yeah, uh, I would say the latter, are still fun. I mean, I think both are kind of funny to imagine. The latter makes sense because we, uh, Bobby's definitely drank. Um, but it could be the former if, like, maybe he's like, now, Bobby, with great... <laughs> I just did like the Hank Hill voice, didn't I? <laughs> um, <laughs> not that, not that Hank, not that Bobby. Okay. Now, uh, if you want a strong drink, you got to make sure you mix it with some propane <laughs> and use your propane accessories. <laughs> From Ed's gas farm. Um, but no, I can see him being like, you know, you know, this is a man's beverage. One day you're going to be a man. And this is the cusp of manhood. I feel like it is proper for me to instruct you in the ways of such things. Yeah. Here's the booze. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all, all Hank Hill jokes aside, though, like, what do you think of this whole situation where Major Briggs shows up in retro aviator garb, doesn't know how long he's been gone, and the Air Force and national security alerts it, are going off that this is like a Cold War size event? This is, it definitely brings up the idea of, like, why an Air Force, like, anything makes more sense but at the same time brings up more questions this man apparently has been stressed at for a short long time however shorter than two days he has felt and has embraced a light that has now brought him back home it is something that i do not have enough information on and i do not think briggs really wants to uh talk about Yet. I, are you still enjoying this emphasis on I, Briggs? I still enjoy this emphasis on Briggs. I look forward to the conversations we have with Briggs uh, because I think that it is interesting to see him back so suddenly rather than just hanging him in the background, dangling him away. Like, will Cooper find the White Lodge where he resides or maybe he's in the Black Lodge? Ba -ba -da -ba -da. So you, you're glad he's back so quickly? I'm glad he's back so quickly. Hmm. It, I think I could see it either way because I could see them... Having him be gone for a while would make his sudden reappearance more dramatic. I prefer the subverted expectation of having this conversation between Bobby and the mother, maybe even being an idea of acceptance mm. and just thinking to yourself like, oh, God, um, is he OK? Like, how long and will he be gone? And off. then he comes back. Yeah. It's it's something that you don't expect. And I think the time for it is best. Rather, That's than, a good point. So, yeah, no, I think that they did well with that. And in some ways, it might be that he has been gone a long time based on the way he looks. He might have been gone in a different time or something. So, yep. okay. Uh, maybe in that uh, age of past aviator outfits. Again, I am not an expert on those things. But luckily, uh, Bobby is able to gander a drink. And if we want to look to another expert of drinks, who better than Pete Martell? Pete Martell is pouring away a lovely bit of, what is it? Nectar of the Gods. The Nectar That was of David the gods. Lynch. That wasn't Pete Martell. That was something. It Catherine. Was... Yep, Nectar there we go. Nectar of the Gods. Dude, that is okay. That's that's a one-for-one one reenactment of mm -hmm. Pete Martell's voice. Mm -hmm. As he prepares the Nectar of the Gods and he begins to quote quite poetically of, what was it? Uh, so he says it's Yeats as the poet. Yes. But it, from our, our understanding, and I had a hunch going into this that it's Yates, right? And then we looked it up. It is Yates. Now, this could be just like a quick line read, and it might have just been an overall uh, quick cut, and it just, like, yes. this was not an age in which, like, like go on the internet, just pronounce it quick. Uh, it might just be a misconception of, of, like, different people believing it's pronounced a different way. And the understanding I have at this point is that they, you know, they're 
they're kind of flying by the seat of their pants week by week, week by week. Like season one, <laughs> season one was already all shot before it started airing. Yes. Season two, they have to make it up as they go. Yeah. So in a weekly syndicated soap opera like this, yeah, they may not have had time for doing more line readings. Like mm. they might have been on a real schedule for all we know. No, but it, it's still no matter what circumstances happened, it's in the canon of the show that Pete Martell doesn't know it's pronounced Yates. Yes. And Regardless of whatever reason there was for that, we can interpret it. And it could actually be a good character um, sort of reveal being that Pete is someone who is well-read. He enjoys various bits of art. It just Like he be- recognizes the poem and the name to memorize the poem. Yes, it's just not maybe... Maybe there's just less people to really speak of Yates around him, or he has not been in more of an academic situation in which Yates may be more publicly yeah. spoken about. It's it's book learning that was self-taught and self-educated. Mm-hmm. Ver, you know, because I'm assuming there's a pretty good-sized library, right, that like the he, Martells they, have. The Martells have books everywhere, and we were making jokes it was Catherine's, but maybe it's just Pete's. It could be Pete's. I don't know and, if Catherine bothers reading. Yeah, but uh, Catherine is uh, enjoying a nice meal uh, until she can be a little bit less bothered by Pete's um, as Josie is mating about in the background. Mating? Mating. Okay, I don't remember seeing that happen in the background. <laughs> she is being a maid in the background. She mating. Is mating. Yep, okay. She is mating. Professor. Yes. You know what that sounds like, right? <laughs> hey, it is not up to me. It sounds for like they're doing the D mind. back there. It's not for me to have your dirty mind. I am simply well, saying she's being Well, I better be cleaned up because there's the a maid. <laughs> you got to clean this up. She can clean up her own mess. Um, how is it? No, no, no. I'm going to call you out on this. <laughs> How's it my dirty mind? You said she's mating in the I background. I said she's mating with a D. That's not what you call that. I said she's, she's committing matery. She is committing matery. There, there we you go. go. That's much clearer. That, that's better. Thank you. I, I uh, Now I know that. what's going on. <laughs> but as she commits her matery in the background, uh, Catherine is... Immediately calls for Josie to stop Pete from going for a limerick. Yep. Because he's about to recite his next limerick. Um, again, going back to it, though, because I don't want us to move on too far yet. Yes. I really do like the idea that Pete is someone who is very well read, very well educated, and, and probably reads as much poetry as Dick Tremaine or Ben Horn. Mm-hmm. But the difference between him is he's not around people of sophistication. I think so. That, I don't think he nec- and I don't mean that as a positive. Sophistication is another word for pretentiousness. I it's think, a neutral term. I think that these three characters have sophistication in three different ways. Yeah. One is someone who was oftentimes at the top, someone who had a kingly like role. One person had more so dreams of being a king and was makes himself look like a king and dresses in king's clothing. And the and third one is the king and I. The last one is King. He is, Pete is the man I don't imagine is going to think to himself that I need all this and that. I think he is perfectly happy where he's at with his uh, wife at this point. Oh, he'd I, find academics. He'd find like academia and the sort of people who are like literary experts. He'd find them like pompous. I think he'd be one nothing to do with. Him. I don't know if I would say that as far as that. I think that Pete is the type of person to have conversations with people and. Yeah. enjoy conversations with people. I just but don't think... But the gatekeeping that's in academia, I think would I think he did, well, like, pff, I not think, worth the work. I think that he wouldn't enjoy the gatekeeping. I think that he would just be more so just excited to learn things instead of having it as a front or as a luxury for a position. That's true. Pete is a man of the people. Uh, yes, mostly. Uh, and, and speaking of people, going back to what you're saying, Josie is called along. Um, she's got a new haircut. Yeah. I noticed Audrey also's got like a new haircut. They both got like short hair. Yes. Um, we'll get back to that later. Put a pin in that. 
put a pin in their heads. Um, wow. <laughs> it would definitely hurt. Um, she's got like this weird like arrow on the back of her head. Anyway, we'll get to that later. We'll get to that back to that later. Um, Pete at first looks kind of smug as they're kind of like giving orders to Josie. But then when Josie is like sent away, he's like, don't you think you're being a little hard on her? She's still part of the family to which Catherine, um, perhaps rightly is like, no, Josie probably had a hand in Andrew's. Did she say Andrew's death? Yeah. I think she said Andrew's death. Yeah. Andrew's death. She so points out Andrew's if death. Pete knows it's no, no. Pete even says that that's not what, uh, my Josie would do. It, I, right. don't I don't know if he knows that. Uh, Andrew's still alive is what I mean. I, I think it's leaning on that sense because it looks like more so Catherine is trying to convince Pete more than it is she's trying to put on a show for Josie. Sure. Um, I'm almost certain that Catherine has certain cards in her hand that she doesn't want good old Pete to have at the moment. I mean, sure. they've only been reunited for so long. They've been distanced in their marriage for so long. So Reunited and it feels so good, but that does not mean it is full of equitable knowledge. Mm-hmm. I understand what you're coming from. Um, so Pete, yeah, he doesn't believe it. He doesn't really believe that the Josie he knows would do something like that. But then they decide to toast to Catherine. Catherine decides to toast to Catherine. Pete agrees. Clink the champagne glasses. Here's to you, poodle. Is Catherine a poodle? Catherine is a poodle. I think like, okay, this is a fun little side tangent. In terms of, uh, Twin Peaks characters, uh, if they were dogs, um, you'd agree Catherine's a poodle? Yes. What kind of dog would Pete be? Pete, um, mixed breed. He'd be a mutt. He'd be a mutt. Mm-hmm. Um, Ed. Ed, I can see someone like Ed being, I need to know dogs better. I, I'm thinking of like those mastiffs. Oh, I, I'd say beagle. Dog. Oh, beagle. Okay. Yeah, I don't think he's a, I, oh, I know he's a tall man, but he's a big old reliable person that you could probably smush his face. Dick Tremaine. Dick Tremaine. Uh, he is... Someone who will have a pedigree, uh, a very highly <laughs> esteemed uh, pup, but I think that he will be secretly a mixed breed. Hmm. And someone like, who else can I pick? Lana. Lana is... What's the most flirtatious dog? The Black Widow dog. What is that? Is it a spider it's dog? A, it's a spider dog. Ugh, that's terrifying. <laughs> what do you imagine this spider dog looks like? It, it looks like a dog, but it's also a spider. Does it have eight legs? Uh, No. um who else is there to be uh cooper cooper uh cooper uh, is there a dog's name that rhymes with coop droop droopy it's not Mm. a type of dog (laughs) droopy dog uh i don't know a lot of dog breeds either to be completely honest are there any pit bulls um leo johnson i would agree let's, let's do it backwards Kinds of dogs we do know. <laughs> Are there any wiener dogs? Like, mm. I'm thinking Andy. I think that this is a good one. By the way, I do not want to condone. There are some very, very sweet uh, pit bulls. I'm going more. So oh no, I, I no, I agree with you. The stereotype, Lo- stereotype, give, stereotype. Give some pit bulls some love, people. Uh, no, that no. is my PSA. Yeah, dog breeds aren't bad. People are bad. Yes. Um, All dogs go to heaven. Yes, I, I was just thinking more so of the musculature. Um, yeah, and the, the nature that if it is a bad pit bull and they bite, they can be fierce. They can be fierce. If they're bred that way. Like I just can't think of any other more muscly. Can you think of a more muscly dog? Uh, I don't know. Uh, we all know that wiener dogs are going to be Andy. Okay, you're on the same page with that. Good, good, good. Yes. Um, what other kind of dogs are there? <laughs> there's, there's other. There's uh, the one with the long hair. 
<laughs> you know the the big the, the one that's like tall. It's got like I hardly know music names, and you want me to know dog breeds? Well, they're not the same thing. You could theoretically know all about one and not the other. Okay, okay, they're okay. not linked. Okay, husky is going to be hawk. Ooh, I think a light, uh, like a very light eyed husky. Are there any corgis? Corgis? Uh, I'm trying to remember corgi. That's like the cowboy bebop dog. Oh, okay. Yeah, Dick Tremaine. Dick Tremaine. No, I I like. I, it is something in which I can see uh, the dog sitting proudly, but at the same time have a waddle. Pug, does anyone have any breathing issues in this show? <laughs> well, Jacques Renault did toward the end of his life. Yep. <laughs> actually, Dick, yeah, that's probably actually the best answer. Is Jacques <laughs> a pug. All right, moving on. Thank you for entertaining that. Thank you. Thank you. Um, how am I going to segue to this? <laughs> hey, actually, I do have a segue for this. Oh my god, I didn't even realize it. I want to talk about the Log Lady intro next. I'm brilliant. Because the Log Lady's intro, she talks about having a large dog. We don't know the breed. We do know, however, that it was black and white. So maybe a Dalmatian. Person naps. And he ate everything. Why, why Dalmatian? Because black and white. Oh. oh what other kinds realize. of dogs are black and white? Like, uh, that's immediately... I mean, I, other dogs can be, but the classic black and white dog... Uh-huh. IMO, maybe TBH. Maybe she's talking about like it's the morality of the dog, okay? The morality of the dog was black this, and this white. This dog had a rigid sense of ethics, okay? <laughs> this dog d- believed that all crime, either innocent or you die. <laughs> there's there's no in between. It was probably why the dog ended up eating dirt. Like, just ultra-Orthodox conservative here. Like, super. Like, the Amish people are going too light into tradition for this dog. So uh, this dog, it was large, and it ate uh, her So garden. much earth that it, it died yep, and returned uh, to the earth. Ate her garden, all the plants, and much earth. Um, so And all she has left of this dog is a memory. Yeah. So, like, what did you interpret this to be? I interpret uh, her uh, not really trying to train the dog, because if the dog is eating so much earth, I think at that point the log lady is just watching and I think that no pet should be allowed on the premises. I think that that's why she has a log, because it's really hard so, to kill a log. <laughs> there's a lot of things I actually want to talk about with this. So first of all, do you believe that she actually had a dog? Like, we don't know the canon nature of these log lady intros. I, if, if we get no other evidence, do I think, you think this is a literal that she had a dog? I think that there are a lot of strange coincidences in Twin Peaks. So having a parallel that she has experienced in life, I can believe it enough. I think that, yes, there could have been a dog in her life that just kept on, like, eating dirt. I know that when I was donating my time to the Humane Society, I was having a hard time stopping dogs from eating rocks, like little puppies. Uh, so it does happen. She she just might have not trained the puppy. Oh, well, the dog was large, so that, that dog must have not been trained well enough to know, <laughs> don't eat the rocks. Oh, I, I personally on the side that I, I currently don't know if I believe that the Log Lady intros are real. Like, I kind of am growing to the opinion that it's just David Lynch wanting to tell us things. And he's, like, using her as, like, a vehicle for it. So, like, they kind of take place outside of time and space almost. At the White Lodge. Maybe. <laughs> but the way she looks at the camera, the way it's kind of fourth wall breaking, it, it feels like this is the director talking to me. So I'm not sure if there even is a literal dog. So I still am interpreting this one as like bittersweet David Lynch writing these after the show finished airing. Okay. I, I And in that situation, at least the way I was thinking of it is that the dog is Twin Peaks. Okay. Or at least 
the Twin Peaks that David Lynch had envisioned. And then it began, you mentioned too many cooks as a phrase in the past. Too many cooks. It began to swallow up more than it could handle. It, Mm -hmm. It chewed up more than it could handle. And because of that, it died. And that all there's left of this now is a memory. All David Lynch is left with is the memory of what used to be his Twin Peaks. Mm-hmm. But it, it died on him. And if we take the black and white idea, maybe he's arguing that the show is becoming too black and white almost. He said he was black and white. So if it is the idea of that dog was black and white, maybe he prefers that overall nature. Like maybe when he does. things were simpler. Maybe things, yeah, that could be it. And now it's gotten to be too complicated, too convoluted, too much going on. Yes. I don't know if that's, I don't know. We'll have to see, obviously, as we continue. You know, you don't have the full context of what David Lynch is like as a filmmaker and painter and musician and everything else he does. But uh, I, I I, don't think it's totally out of character for him to possibly think that way. Yeah. Again, I think that I'm going to stick with the parallels that maybe both can exist uh, at once. We have a canon idea of the log lady is just bad at taking care of dogs. And also it might be just more so a lynch lament. Well, we also do get the obvious like tie-in of dead dog farm, right? So, you know. Ah, just a coincidence. Everything else was <laughs> parallelism. Everything else was parallelism had an actual connection, but this one was just complete coincidence. <laughs> sure. Early on in the episode, we get this ominous coin flip where, uh, you know, Cooper's trying to decide where to look for properties. Yeah, he's looking at cabins, which I think is a very sweet, despite, like, his current circumstance. That well, if, be if this doesn't go very well and he finds himself, well, I guess he'd be in prison. Yeah, he he'd be, be in prison. Uh, <laughs> Where's the log cabin I'll go for after prison? Yeah, exactly. Long-term planning. Um, is this ominous coin flip, and it ends up landing as fate and coincidence should have it. Yeah, she points uh, out two properties, but the coin lands on a third that she yes. thought, oh, I didn't mean to have that there. Like, that's not supposed to be there. Dead Dog Farm, which also it's called Dead Dog Farm. I'm pretty sure the last time we saw a coin flip was in that weird lodge scene where we were trying to figure out who was the killer. Could you imagine consciously naming a place Dead Dog Farm? Um, and, yeah. like, that's what you say to clients when it comes to, like, trying to sell this real is, estate? This is the sense of being like, no, don't go to this place. We don't want to sell Even though I have this. it on file, like, I'm going to show you it. Why don't you just remove the file? <laughs> Get rid of this place. I think that maybe she had because, again, she's like, that's not supposed to be there. She brought it to the sheriff's station, uh, though. Maybe? I don't know. And then that's the excessively orange coop we were talking about. And uh, I, I don't really know what to think of Irene. I kind of... Am I wrong to think that she's just kind of very flatly acting? I think like that... Like, very flat delivery? You know, actually, there was a very interesting point in when they do enter the area. Uh, mm-hmm. Irene is very oblivious to all the things Cooper yeah. is seeing. Uh, she, they go off to the property, and he's like, have you shown this property often? It's like, oh, not in about a year. Three fresh tracks. She, uh, They both go in, and, like, the curtains are burned. Like, this yeah. place looks horrible. There's, like, cigarette butts inside a little ashtray. And the There's, door like, was white open. Powder. Like, it was unlocked. Like, yep. for not showing a place for a year, it's unlocked. Yep, but she's just casually going through it. Like, it's another day in the business, which makes me very concerned for the other properties. And yeah. when she's looking around, it's like, what are you seeing? Like, this is apparently <laughs> all normal. Yeah. <laughs> I, it's very strange. It's, it's just baby powder on in the sink and cocaine on the chair. It would not be Twin Peaks without it. But that's not even... Okay, so that would be less the acting and more like the way the character's being I, written. I think that I prefer like this delivery of this character because it implies something very interesting well, about this like land seller, this home seller. Yeah, because even before this, you know, she's just kind of expositioning at Cooper. 
The best and the worst are drawn to dead dog. Only those with the purest of hearts can feel its pain. Just like saying those like normal sentences. Yeah. I, I'm willing to buy it when Hawk does it because he says it with such severity and like seriousness of like, Cooper, you may be brave in this world, but there are other worlds. Like he's very severe about it. She's just like, yeah, dead dog farm. You know, it's kind of a strange place. You know, those of wicked intent are banished from the shaft, you know? Oh yeah, but you already know that. <laughs> it's Come a on. fine thing to just start it's rambling fine. off. This is the stuff that like we are supposed to tell it's on our cue cards whenever we go through uh, new customers. It's just, yeah, Irene's really weird. I don't know if it's deliberate or not, but- I enjoy it. It, it feels very unreal. Uh-huh. That's the word I'm going to use. Uh-huh. Because if it's a bad thing, it's unrealistic. If it's a good thing, it's got a sense of surrealism to it. Yep. So whatever way you want to interpret it, it's unreal. I'm team surrealism. Um, I'm team baby laxative rather than cocaine, I guess. Because uh, Cooper I'm, notices that there's a white powder in the sink. They must not have noticed that the, the sink wasn't working, the faucet. And he tastes it, and it's baby powder. And then next, he uh, he gets a little snackaroonie off the chair Tasty cocaine. Yep. Don't don't do drugs, kids. Don't do or drugs. Or adults. Well, I mean, if it's legal in your area kids, and you want to, I mean. Uh, people, uh, do not do baby laxatives. Baby laxatives <laughs> yeah. are for babies. <laughs> the more you know. <laughs> yeah. But I want to relax. That's what laxatives are for, right? But are you a baby? Are you a baby? I'm looking at my notes desperately <laughs> trying to find a way to tie this into something. Are you a baby, Cleo? I don't think Answer I am. Answer the question. I don't think I am. I, I don't I don't know if I am. So what do you think of the way they're using fate and coincidence here? Because that's been a thing early in the show that, like, things just happen to Cooper based on, like, luck or fate, fate and coincidence, whatever you want to believe. But from a writing sense, it's a really cheap way out of any problem. Oh, no, Cooper might lose everything. Let's have him just, like, flip a coin and he randomly ends up at the exact location where the deals are being done. If you think of it in a larger sense, a chess-like sense even, Cooper was going to be publishing just to try to get the word out of his move to, um, what's his face? Well, Windham he has Earl. no face. Windham Earl. Getting his move out to Windham Earl, but Windham Earl was already responding. Cooper believes it was anticipation of the move. But I think that there is a larger note on Cooper is being that he's being flung into a game that's just going to keep going around him no matter what. That the moves cannot go outside the board. Do you think Cooper, in a more metaphorical sense, in terms of the narrative, do you think he's the one playing chess or do you believe he's another chess piece? Like I was mentioning beforehand, it is really dependent on if we believe that he and Wyndham Earl are actually facing one another on this white and black chessboard, mm -hmm. like how it is parallel with the lodge, or if Wyndham Earl even still considers him, like, somewhat on his own side. Sure. Like, he is a piece on his side, and he's more so taunting Coop for not making moves when there's more openings for the queen on his board. And in the end, if there's someone going to be at Wyndham Earl's side, it's probably going to be the queen piece, the Cooper piece. Yeah. Either Cooper's self or shadow self. Because I, because I think there's something to be argued here that if Cooper is the metaphorical chess player, he is someone with a sense of control and direction, and he's trying to outmaneuver. Whereas if he is just another piece, these things that would seem to be random chance and coincidence, he's just a pawn in a larger game that others are moving around. Or queen. 
or king, like pieces or of the king of queens, him. like that. I don't think he's, TV sitcom with Kevin James. I do not think he is going to be a pawn in any of this. He's either a king or he's a queen, a king on his own side or a queen on another. Fine, a pawn with elevated stature. Let's put it that way. That's what happens when you get to the end of the board. It turns oh. into a queen. Oh, I don't play chess. <laughs> I can tell. Um, but uh, listener. If you have any information about the assault that happened at Hector's Burrito Heaven, um, please, could you contact us can, immediately? Can, yeah, speaking of that little newspaper, can there were some very nice ones. Can you please contact us immediately if you have um, any knowledge of Heaven's uh, Burrito? What, no, Hector's yeah. Burrito Heaven. That's there right. was apparently, uh, there, I love reading like small little notes because you get more ideas of the world. And sure. there's definitely some weird stuff going on. Apparently there's an assault at Hector's Burrito Heaven last night. There's a place in town called Hector's Burrito Heaven. And honestly, uh, when it comes to Norma's mom, she didn't have to like uh, go for the double R. She should have made the review at Hector's Burrito Burrito heaven. Okay, for, like we should probably clarify for the wins. listener what we're talking about because I don't know if they look. If I, you I was saying the newspaper the, uh, that he was yeah, submitting to, where he put the the note in there of Earl to P to Q four and yes. I, I feel like the audience probably thinks we're, listener thinks we're just like insane because we just started talking about burrito heaven. I thought that uh, I made mention to it in my own words while we were discussing, but if not, that was that's a good note we can keep in. And then there was that notice. Uh, adventure seekers, my junk, your treasure. And the other notice. Oh yeah, that one. I prefer the I prefer like the vague sense of like my junk, your treasure, but no number, no reference, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just mysteriously. <laughs> Come get my stuff. You can only find it first. I left everything I owed in one piece. Uh, but yes, the <laughs> the service uh, has me stationed some place in the middle of nowhere, and it gets a little lonely out here. Not much for scenery, just a lot of white stuff. I'm in my middle twenties, black hair, hazel eyes, five foot five, one fifteen pounds. 43, 32, 38. And at first I was thinking maybe this might be like an old ad from uh, Harold, but it's like, oh, by the way, I'm a female. You thought those are Harold's measurements? I don't know. I don't know measurements. I don't know what this size means. <laughs> I feel like the Harold, relative number of 43 like means Harold's nothing chest, to me. I think Harold's chest is probably not proportionate if I had to guess. Maybe. I don't know. I didn't see him take off his flannel shirt. He might have an hourglass. Yeah, where was that Herald fan service we all where wanted? Where is that Herald fan service? Why are you leaving us hanging? <laughs> but yes, um, I, I love finding little notes like this, personally. this yeah. it, it is is fantastic. I uh, hope Cooper can... seems to not notice that, though, because he's too busy, like, in actual, like, fear and anticipation of the fact that it seems like Wyndham Earl is always one step ahead. Yeah. That he knows what's going to happen. He predicted his response basically perfectly. Yes. Um, not not a good not a good sign. Although he does immediately get positive news when Audrey comes in, and she gives the pictures that uh, Bobby had taken. She stole them from her father, and these are the pictures that you mentioned earlier were very incriminating toward Hank and Jean Reno, mm -hmm. which would potentially help Cooper, um, in the sense that it seems like these are the people setting him up. Yes. Um, when we get Denise entering right after that too, mm -hmm. back to back. Yes. And. I think it's really interesting how Audrey reacts to Denise. Yeah, uh, she's actually surprised. She's like, they they can have women in the force? Her first words were they have women agents. And it seems like she does understand that this is someone who is um, uh, biologically male in women's clothing. I like Because the general reaction of other characters previously was like confusion about the gender. I don't... 
Audrey's reaction's weird because I think she notices that, but she sees past the initial confusion of that and goes for the bigger picture yeah, of I, like female agents. I think that she has a very Cooper-like style to her. Yeah. I think that her and Cooper are well matching in many different Which, ways. You know, then she giggles happily and kisses Coop. Mm-hmm. Like, Which, it, like again, straight hopefully up. She's, hopefully she's 18. Yeah, at first she like was concerned when Denise was walking in, like, who is this? Almost like a hint of jealousy. Yeah. But then uh, she quickly, like, just almost as like a big, uh, good old display, as well as, hey, gotta take the shot, why not? Uh, gives Coop a big old kiss and walks out the door. Uh, Denise makes a, uh, like, he, Cooper starts, like, getting into business and goes into the bigger implications uh, of the case. But then, like, Denise is like, well, but, but there's a more larger concern. How old is she? Yeah. And, and then he's like, wait a second. I, I I, didn't expect you to be able to still be into women. And uh, we do learn that. Uh, we'll talk more later about it. But uh, they walk towards the door and uh, say that they put their panties on one leg at a time. If you catch what I mean. And Cooper says that he doesn't. And I didn't. I'll be I, honest and say this line's eluded me for quite a while. Uh, put your uh, put uh, your pants on one leg at a time is a phrase that usually means that one is mortal. Uh, they, so it's an American idiom, I assume, because uh, I don't know if it's like a, a phrase that like other countries would know. Yeah, I think that it is American, um, but it is something in which, from what I saw implied in the conversation, this might be just me, but it felt like a sense of being like, hey, I... I may be someone who now is in women's clothing, also alluding to the panties, but in like a little bit of a wink, uh, I think you said the word double entendre yeah. when we were discussing it. It's a sense of, I still have my desires. I just look a bit different now. I'm still the same person. See, and I was always confused because I was like, what does that have to do with liking women? Because at first I thought it was trying to imply something about like the genitals about Denise. And I was like, is the show implying that because he has the man tools that that means he's automatically into guys. I say he here because that's kind of the assumption. Yeah. But, but I'm just like, I don't, that never made sense to me fully either. No, I think that he's just telling Cooper who knows, uh, Cooper knows, uh, Denise or from the past that, yeah, Denise is still the person that Cooper knows. Like I, I'm still like I was, I'm just look a little different now. Yeah, and, and let's let's talk about the gender thing right now, too, because... Yes, because later on, uh, we'll do just a quick segue, because they decide, hey, uh, we're going to try to grab Ernie quick. Um, so Denise goes over to the dub, uh, the double R, and uh, Denise walks over to Ernie and starts saying, yeah, you know what? I got a little bit of business right here, so we can do this the easy way or the hard way, in broader terms, as Denise is just taking care of the makeup. Uh, on the face and so on. And just I don't like, want to put the squeeze on you, but like, look at these photographs. Yeah. Just, Do you know that song by Nickelback? Look at these photographs. You know that song, Nickelback? I, I think so. I've seen like that line specifically okay, at least. It's a meme. Uh, not mean. the rest of the song though. Every um, time I do, it makes me laugh. Okay, I don't know that line. So I only know, look at this photograph. Mm. Um, <laughs> but, I don't know if Ernie's laughing though. Nope, Ernie's not laughing because... Uh, Ernie is very spineless. Like hard cuts to the next Like part. hard cuts to the point that like there's a heavy storm going on. Yeah. That uh, he's just like, oh, you don't realize I, I, I had to protect my family. I had to protect myself. They were threatening me. I was worried. And, so the, and he's just, and like Cooper and Denise are just like, okay, get on with it. I, we I, need I, the information. Well, you see my family. I did this for them. It's like, he's trying to defend himself. He has like, he's tr admitting to a lot of 
the stuff. It's just he's more quick to defend himself. Yeah. He is cowering. He is. Are you like an Ernie? A yet? slimy slug. Uh, he is a slimy slug. I, in I enjoy Ernie for that reason. I I think that this is the best scene we've got with Ernie yet. I would agree with you. Mm-hmm. I've liked Ernie prior though. I liked his false bravado when he was trying to impress Jean Renault and like I'm your man. I'm your guy. I'm. <laughs> Yeah, and then to see this now, it's a yeah. good payoff. And I'm your man. I'm your guy. They were trying to hurt me. Yeah, it had a gun to my head. Uh, and but, uh, uh, both Cooper and Denise were saying that um, he's going to get a special little customer sure. uh, over at the Dead Dogs to try to get rid of those kilos, just as a nice front, just to try to get people caught. Uh, and um, they say that because he's going to be the guy. He's like, you're looking at him. Uh, when Ernie is looking at Denise, which I believe implies that he still goes by the he, him pronouns. So my counter to that for this would be, and just to clarify for listeners, I've seen the show. I'm just kind of working off the idea of if someone's going into the show blind, how do we know what gender identity Denise is? Because the show is not very clearly shown Denise making a declaration of that. We don't know at this point is this person transgender or is this person identifying as a man wears drag? Mm. And that's a complicated situation. It is a complicated situation, but the fact that uh, Denise uses him as a pronoun directly when referring to oneself, I, so I my think that's the closest case. My counter to this would be that I believe you can make an argument that Denise is using that pronoun because it's a reply to when Ernie was saying, who is he? Oh, you're looking at him. Because imagine, for example, if this was just for the sake of argument, a cisgendered woman, okay, um, just like an actual, like uh, clearly female agent, uh-huh. okay, and Ernie made this comment of how am I gonna know the person? How am I gonna know what he looks like? I could see the female agent being like, "Oh, you're looking at him," because like I've seen movies and shows where they do that, where it's like the person assumes it's gonna be a guy. Well, then the woman's like, "Oh, you're looking at him right here." Mm-hmm. Like I'm the person mm-hmm. not necessarily saying I'm a man, but more like, Oh, you're looking for him. I'm him. Okay. So that's where I'm a little bit unsure because in the, in the same episode earlier, when Audrey was asking about female agents, um, basically asking Denise about that. Denise says, yeah, more or less. Yeah. Identifying more or less. I'm a female agent. Yeah. Which would be female. Yeah. But you can still use different pronouns, even if like different identity or different I, I guess I would, we can get very, very specific in particular, but I would yes. say that in the vast majority of cases, someone who identifies as female is going to use female pronouns. Okay. I don't, I don't think that's a very controversial generalization. Mm. Um, so the fact that identified as more or less, I'm a female agent. Okay. Is, is also just like, that's the thing though. If we latch onto the Ernie comment of I'm him, mm-hmm. I think we also have to look at I'm more or less a female agent. Okay it kind of counters each other. Yeah. So it's still left at the situation of, I don't know if at this point, two episodes into this character, we really know. Okay. Which maybe that's on purpose. Maybe it's not. Maybe the nineties were different than 30 years later, mm-hmm. where I think that the expression of gender and the awareness of those expressions has like vastly diversified and expanded over years. Yes. And, and I guess the main thing is just for the sake of our listeners here, you know, we mostly want to make sure we get this right for the sake of properly understanding the character and representation wise Mm -hmm. and what they identify as just that we're being consistent and correct here. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, again, whatever the situation is valid identity for a valid adult. I just, it is weird to think that it's so difficult to tell with this character (laughs) with the way that they've been written. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and, and again, I think it's a reflection of the fact that in 1990, the distinction between transgender female and someone who is a male dressed in women's clothing would not have been very distinct to the average American viewer. I think I have a way to potentially answer this, uh, Khalil. Uh, I don't know if you're willing to look through it or if you even want to answer through it, but I do have those trading card arts, uh, which apparently <laughs> have character profiles on them. I mean, we're going to get more Denise in the episodes to come. I just think it's interesting to work with you as you haven't seen the show before, uh-huh. figuring it out episode by episode. Okay. Because I could look into other material and future episodes and cards and everything and give you a more definitive answer. Yeah. I think it might be more interesting, though, to just kind of take it as it happens. Okay. I think otherwise, that pretty much wraps up our conversation on the Black Widow episode uh, of this. I thought, I thought of the Black Widow from the Marvel Cinematic Universe when I said that. Um, the Black Widow episode of Twin Peaks. I do want to leave you with a question. Uh, we've been rotating this question around the past few episodes. And I, I think suitably, I want to have a lighter conversation and a lighter question to end on here. Um, who do you think was the best dressed character in this episode of Twin Peaks? Lil Nicky in uh, Andy's head. He had a very <laughs> stunning red outfit. Oh, of um, course you'd find a way to like have an invalid answer. You'd find a way to somehow manage to ruin this question. Why are you saying my answers are invalid? That's not that a corporeal a, entity. That is a theoretical entity. Now, it may be a theoretical entity, but did an actor... Uh, dress up in a costume, or was that completely a CGI? So is that, the, that the best outfit is that wearing is a generic outfit. demon devil costume? Is, it may be generic in your eyes, but honestly, it is very fun and strange and unique in mine. It is by far the most stylish outfit, I've got to say. It's especially style. if our contenders are um, things such as what is Tremaine wearing and what is he forcing little Nikki to wear? <laughs> At first, when you said little Nikki, I thought you were going to go for that, and I'm like, really? Okay. Nope, nope. I don't think it's one of his best looks. Like, uh, doesn't compare to the Nicky Devil. He pulls really? it off well. I I initially was gonna say Pete, but then I rescinded this belief and went later for Lucy. I believe Lucy is the best dressed for this episode. Could you describe the best dress? She is. I, partly, I wanted it for the pun, but Lucy is with diamonds. She is wearing a lovely blue sweater, kind of a darker navy, not quite navy, like a darker blue, a deeper blue, almost royal blue with diamonds, right? And it's this blue sweater. She has these gold heart earrings, red lipstick. Very, very, very good look. It, it suits her well. I see. But it's it's a very nice sweater. And I think that this is, a, you know, it's getting into the fall season right now. It in is. our local area. In our local area. Uh, by the time this broadcast, it'll be closer to Halloween than the last episode where you said, wah-ha-ha, Halloween. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then we'll be moving on to November in the following month. So I think sweater weather's kicking in. I, sweater I, and short weather. I have grown accustomed over the years to like sweaters more. I've, I've My appreciation for sweaters has increased. And I think of the sweaters in this episode... Uh, Lucy with the diamonds, Lucy. 110% of the way. But she's not in the sky. I, I do want to ask, though, thank you for identifying my joke. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you think of the short haircuts on uh, Josie and Audrey? Um, overall, I think that I do enjoy... I, I know it sounds strange. I usually am used to describing the look of characters uh, through animation. So I'm, I'm reluctant to say I like uh, Josie's new design. I mean... <laughs> um, it's, it is a design in a it sense, It is a yeah. design in a sense. There's a designer, a costume designer. Yep, um, someone who Stylist. has a nice made proper. I enjoy that when she is told to put on the hat, it is still uh, put it a little bit of a Yeah, a little bit to the side. 
I, I think Josie wears it better than Audrey. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really curious on the back of Josie's head. She's got like this weird like arrow going down, like almost like a rat tail. Uh, yeah. That was a little weird. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I'm, I'm a fan of the short hair like, look on might, Josie. It just might be like the, how the hair sort of grows out. It just was the loof loof. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm going to say that uh, I'm going to say it looks good for Josie. Mm-hmm. And are you going to insult Audrey, I guess? No, no, I, I think Audrey's <laughs> looks fine. Okay. Um, but fine enough that to be brought up. That that's where my curiosity is at. I think. Well, those are the two female, uh, the two, um, yeah, the two me, two actresses in this episode who had uh, notably shorter hair, mm-hmm. so they're comparable. Mm-hmm. Well, everyone else could have haircuts. Could you tell me more about Cooper's haircut? He didn't have a haircut for this episode. Maybe not a, like a Maybe drastically went- different style. Maybe the only can. ones I noticed, <laughs> and dear listener. If you notice someone else's hair changed dramatically in this episode so that I, you could somehow accuse me of focusing unfairly on Andre. Man, how dare you not notice Pete's magnificent mullet uh, that he grew up for this episode? Please. <laughs> oh, a major Briggs' hair change? Um, Please send us an email or a YouTube reply or a Twitter tweet. You know how to get a hold of us. It's in the description. I said at the beginning of the video. Uh, really, listener, uh... We're we're happy to to have you along the ride, absolutely. Because we're we're like we're we're in the home stretch right now for the original Twin Peaks, and we're just gonna keep riding and riding and riding and riding and riding. How can I get that in writing? No. <laughs>